Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts. The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be chatting with Ricky Riccardi, the archivist for the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Queens, New York, about the 50th anniversary of Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. They'll talk about the uh, Wonderful World exhibit, which is currently on display at the house, as well as the song's unusual chart history and what makes it continually relevant a half century later. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes. You know, come on, why don't you? It's easy. You just press a button and it's free. And you can you know, give us a rating or review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So fun fact about Louis Armstrong that's not related to What a Wonderful World. Um, he actually got his first and only number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 with a cover of Hello, Dolly from the musical of the same name. Armstrong was 63 years old when he hit number one way back in 1964. And perhaps shockingly, the elder statesmen of jazz bumped the Beatles from a monopoly at number one. The Fab Four had spent 14 straight weeks atop the list with three number one singles in a row. I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, and Can't Buy Me Love. But now... It's time to remember Armstrong's What a Wonderful World on Coming Around Again. What a wonderful world. Hello, welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast celebrating anniversaries in the music world. Uh, this week we're, we're celebrating a little bit of an older one than we usually do here on Coming Around Again. Uh, we're looking at the 50-year anniversary of Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. Uh, classic song, has, has a, sort of an interesting history to it. And uh, here to talk about it with us, we have uh, Ricky Riccardi, the curator of the Louis Armstrong – sorry, Louis or Louis? Either way. Either way? Okay. Yeah, some people get very violent about it. I'm cool. As well, long I appreciate as, as long that. As you're talking I appreciate about you him. letting me off the hook. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't want to say it you know, 15 times, then you correct me on the 16th. So, all right. So, the Louis Andrew Louis Armstrong House Museum in Corona, Queens. Uh, and they have a very special exhibit uh, that started a couple months ago on the 50th anniversary of What a Wonderful World. So, thanks so much for coming by, Ricky. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, and uh, I'm actually sort of ashamed that I haven't been there yet because uh, I'm a fellow Queens resident. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Astoria. So, it's not exactly around the corner. Right, but, right, right. Uh, yeah, I have a Carl, I, I should have made it there by now, but uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the history of you in the museum uh, and the history of this exhibit? Sure. Um, the Louis Armstrong House Museum is pretty much what it sounds like. It's the house Louis Armstrong lived in for the last 28 years of his life. Uh, to give you the quick backstory, I mean, he was born in New Orleans uh, in absolute poverty and, right. you know, fourth grade education, the whole works, being arrested multiple times. Uh, when fame struck, he was in Chicago. Uh, he eventually started touring after a few years in New York. Uh, and he always lived out of apartments and hotels, lived out of a suitcase pretty much. In October 1942, he married a cotton club dancer, Lucille Wilson. 
And uh, their honeymoon was six straight months of one-nighters. You know, every <laughs> night, different city. And uh, that's what he was used to. That's not what Lucille was used to. So sure. she was from Queens originally. She was friends with some people in Corona. And uh, there was a home for sale in March 1943, 3456 107 Street. Lucille put the down payment down, moved in, moved her mother in, and never told Louis. Wow. He's out on tour in the middle of nowhere he, sure, found, he found out soon enough sure. yeah he comes back from the tour he's like all right i'll meet you in harlem that's where they were living she goes no here's the address and uh he shows up at the house in corona it is not a mansion it's like a typical archie bunker queen's house sure. you, you could walk right past it and not even know it was his but to him it was a mansion uh it was more than he had ever had before when he first saw it he couldn't even believe it was his and once he moved in, that was it. As much mm. fame as he had, movies, hit records, radio, TV, the whole works. Uh, he could be shaking hands with the Pope. He could be stopping civil wars in Africa. But he wanted a total down-home, down-to-earth existence. He wanted to be with real people. Simple life. Simple life. Mm. He wanted to be around the kids. So as yeah, he could have chose to live anywhere. But he chose Queens, which says a lot about Queens. him. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, so he passed away in 1971. Uh, Lucille was devoted to his legacy. She saved everything. Uh, people didn't really know it, but he was a pack rat, and he was kind of dedicated to telling his own story. Mm -hmm. So inside the house were like 750 reel-to-reel -reel tapes he had made with unpublished recordings and spoken word recordings, him advocating for marijuana and telling <laughs> jokes. You oh, don't hear that about Louis Armstrong oh, very often. Oh, man. That was one of his causes. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, so Lucille died suddenly in 1983. The house was declared a National Historic Landmark by that point, and they never had any children. So in her will, uh, the city of New York took over, and the Armstrong estate selected Queens College to administer it all. So step one was getting all of Lewis's stuff together, all of his trumpets and scrapbooks and manuscripts. And so the Armstrong archives opened up uh, at Queens College in 1994. And that's, that's half the operation. That's what I'm in charge of. It's the okay. world's largest archives for a single jazz musician. And the house, after a $5 million restoration, opened up in October 2003. So the house is the main operation, gift shop, concerts in the summer, about 20,000 visitors a year, school groups every day. Uh, the archives, what I'm in charge of, is open by appointment only. But, yeah, it's where we have the fun stuff. It's where right. we can hear Lewis, you know, cursing and, <laughs> and everything else. So uh, the exciting news is that we were opening up an education center in about two or three years. We just broke ground in July. And uh, everything at Queens College is going to move across the street in a brand new building. So when you visit 107th Street in Corona in about two or three years, you'll be able to see the house, see the archives, see a live concert, do the whole thing, like our version of Graceland. Oh, very cool. And and how did you personally, was, was this always a passion of yours? Or how, For how me, did... yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how long this podcast is, but I'll give you the... <laughs> you, you, give, give you the, 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 the two-minute version. Yeah, yeah. the two-minute version. Uh, I saw Armstrong when I was 15 and was just fascinated by him. I thought he was incredible. And uh, the music that spoke to me was the music from his later years, the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, man, this guy's great. And the standard narrative at the time was Armstrong was a genius in the 20s, and then he went commercial. He sure. showbiz and Hello, Dolly, and What a Wonderful World, and hamming it up, and What a Waste of Talent. And I never bought that. So I used to daydream, oh, if somebody would write a book just about the last 25 years, I would read that book. No one was writing it, so I wrote it. And I spent so much time doing research 
uh, at the Armstrong Archives that when they had a job opening for archivists, I said, well, if I'm ever going to yeah, do anything. You're, you're the guy. <laughs> yeah. So I started working as archivist in 2009. My book, which is called What a Wonderful World, came mm-hmm. out in 2011. And uh, now I am literally all Armstrong all the time. Yeah. So, so were you just kind of like waiting out for this 50th anniversary to hit? So you, you had the excuse to, to to dive into obviously what's an important part of the Louis Armstrong oh, yeah. catalog for you? No, yeah. I mean, every day with Armstrong is an anniversary. But when, <laughs> when the calendar turned to 2017, I said, "Oh boy!" So this, yeah, this is, is this is, is the big one. Dunk, yeah. This is the big one. Yeah, because I mean, I give these lectures, I speak to students in college classes, high school classes, and all that, and if they know anything about Armstrong. It's what a wonderful world. So, so yeah, that, that's interesting for any number of reasons, but uh, so that's what I want to, kind of want to start with uh, because you are in the, the halls of Billboard. I'll start with a little yeah. chart trivia for you. Do you know what number, what a wonderful world originally peaked at on the Billboard Hot 100? Uh, in the 60s? It didn't yeah, even, 1967. It didn't even make it. <laughs> that's true, but it did make number 16 on our uh, bubbling uh, easy, under chart. Uh, right, and uh, it was on the easy listening charts for about 15 weeks under... Uh, Sinatra, the world we knew. Uh, <laughs> I think Robert Goulet's version actually charted higher. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. That, uh, that's deeper than my knowledge goes. But I mean, it, it's so interesting because obviously, as you just said, this is probably, if not his most famous song, certainly one of his best, one, one of his best enduring songs, and, and maybe the song that people might certainly most associate with him. Right. But it was a flop at the time. Totally. Uh, totally. Uh, so. We'll get back more into that in a second, but uh, let's just talk about kind of the the, the inspiration for the song and, and how it you know, came into existence, because it, it sort of took a while to, to get to, to Louis Armstrong's hands, right? Well, it was written by a man named Bob Feel and George David Weiss. Uh, George David Weiss did the heavy lifting. He was kind of a professional songwriter. He did Elvis's Can't Help Falling in Love, you know, wow. a, bunch of, yeah. a bunch of big hits. But Bob Feel was the chief A&R guy at uh, ABC Records. And he was just paying attention to the world and you know, Vietnam War and race riots, civil rights, assassinations. I mean, there was so much turmoil going on. And Bob Field looked at it and he goes, you know what? We need Louis Armstrong. And so he had this idea, we need a healing song, and he, yeah, a nice ballad, something to bring people together. He put George David Weiss on the, uh, on the case, and Weiss wrote the song. And, uh, they, and, and why Louis Armstrong? Like, what kind of position did he hold in the culture at the time? So Armstrong, by this point, he was known as America's ambassador of goodwill. Okay. You know, he was still hugely popular. In he was actually probably at the peak of his fame. In 1964, he knocked the Beatles off the top of the charts with Hello, Dolly. Uh, then he was back on the charts with So Long, Deary and Mame and Cabaret. So he was having like one hit record after another. In, in his 60s, In his right? mid-60s, yeah. yeah. So he's a total icon, but beloved around the world. You know, he would go to places where they couldn't understand one word he said, <laughs> and they just loved him. They, sure. just, they responded to the smile, to the persona, just to his electricity. So Armstrong was like the elder statesman, all about love, all about smiles and peace and all that stuff. So the song was presented to Armstrong, and um, his clarinet player told me that the first thing Armstrong did was take out his trumpet and just go through the melody real quick. And if you ever listen to What a Wonderful World, the melody bears more than a passing resemblance to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It's almost... I suppose that's true. I never really <laughs> thought about that. It's almost the same but, song yeah. for like the first four bars. Um, so Armstrong, uh, I don't know if I can curse, but his, curse his, his, his first reaction was, what is this shit? <laughs> 
But then he read the lyrics, and the lyrics of the song took him right to his Queens neighborhood. Yeah, you know, he read down every line, and when he got to the part, his favorite part was the yeah, you know, I see babies cry and right. all that. And he said, "That's it." He goes, "That's that's Corona." Uh, and when he gave interviews, he talked about seeing three generations grow up. And so this song became, like, to him, very personal. Because people ask us, you know, is it about race? Is it ironic? You know, why is he so into it? No, it's like a love letter to uh, to his neighborhood in Corona, Queens. And that's completely coincidental, right? That, that, that I'm sure wasn't written with that intent. Yeah, no, any, they, it's, they, just, it's just his interpretation of it. They were writing it for, like, the world, <laughs> the legitimate world. You know, we need love and all that. And he's like, no, this no, is about the, the kids on my block. You know, the Irish, Italian, African-American, they're all getting along. This is great. So Bob Field knew that he wanted this to be a lavish arrangement. So he hired an arranger named Tommy Goodman. He wrote an orchestration for um, for strings, a choir, a whole orchestra, the whole thing set up. They show up in the studio August 16th, 1967. And everything's going according to plan. But the president of ABC Records, his name is Larry Newton, he comes in the studio, he sees Armstrong singing this weepy ballad, he sees the string section, he hears the choir, and he's like, what is this? Because every record Armstrong made after Hello, Dolly was a copycat of Hello, Dolly. Sure. Everything was happy and peppy and banjos and show mm-hmm. tunes. And so Larry Newton was sure that this was going to be a flop. He was sure that Thiel was blowing the budget, hiring all these musicians. So he caused a ruckus in the studio. And Feel and Newton are going at it, and Feel says, "Do you want to be the first person to ever throw Louis Armstrong out of the <laughs> studio?" And uh, Armstrong and his manager agreed to record it for the the uh, union minimum two hundred and fifty dollars at the time, just so it could be made. Uh, so Newton comes down. They finish the record. Uh, Billboard first reviewed it on September twenty third, nineteen sixty seven, and they said it had the potential to be a sleeper hit of the year, a really glowing review. But Newton, who I'm and I had never met him, but I'm assuming he was the vindictive type. Uh, he put zero promotion. And that I've done, that I've been on Google and I've searched every page of Billboard in I, September. I think the, the exact word uh, you guys use on the website is sabotage, right? Yeah, like, more or less, yeah. He put zero promotion at all. So uh, Armstrong gives it his all. He does it on The Tonight Show in October. He does it on a show called Operation Entertainment. It's on the Jackie Gleason show. He's performing it every night. But it just can't crack, like, the middle of the easy listening chart. Mm-hmm. It's just bubbling there from into 1968, and then it just falls off around February. Well, Larry Newton wasn't paying attention to the overseas market. And all of a sudden, in April of 68, it becomes the number one song in England. And all of a sudden, it creates this stir. And you can check, again, the Billboard charts uh, for all the overseas. It's like number two in Ireland, number one in South Africa. It's on the Norway charts, Scandinavian charts. Yeah, Japan was ordering it. Yeah, all the stuff. Did he Did he have that kind of, that level of success internationally before? Oh, completely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Armstrong, in some respects, you could say he was almost more respected wow. overseas. Because here, to a lot of people, he was like, oh, he's Satchmo, he's smiling. Took for it took him for granted. And over there, they're like, you know, this guy's a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the song blows up. And uh, again, I've, I've done my billboard homework. <laughs> in, April, Clearly, yeah. in April of 68, there was a front page story about the trend of veteran um, 
acts from the, like the 30s and 40s all of a sudden back on the charts. Mm. And the Mills Brothers with Cab Driver and Frankie Lane was on the charts. Wow. And, all and so the article specifically mentions What a Wonderful World. And it, and it talks to Bob Field. And Field said it just sold 75,000 copies in England. We're going to re-release it in America. Larry Newton's going to do a whole push with the, with the disc jockeys. If he did, nothing happened. Yeah. It popped back on the charts in America in the summer of 68. But like I said earlier, literally Robert Goulet's cover, which wow, is on yeah. YouTube, um, topped Armstrong's version. So it doesn't really go anywhere in America. Blows up overseas. Lewis loves the song. He goes overseas. He tours England. He performs it every night. Uh, in 1970, he recorded a remake with a beautiful little speech in the beginning, all about you know what a wonderful world this would be if people loved each other. Yeah, it's, a re- it's, it's a really interesting version. I only heard it for the first time uh, in preparation for this, but yeah. the, the, the arrangement is, is a little bit looser. And, and uh, Oliver Nelson, a great jazz saxophonist, wrote the arrangement. Uh-huh. It's got like a church feel. Bernard Pretty Purdy on drums and a. a just a great, great band. Um, but the speech is very heartfelt. And in the exhibit, we have the original speech. You know, we had it. Mm-hmm. We have the original arrangement and everything. But that was released in 45 Zippo. Yeah. It goes nowhere. So Armstrong dies in 1971. And I don't know if you can find an obituary that mentions this is one of his big hits. Because they say it sold less than a thousand copies in the in, U.S. In the, right? in the U.S., yeah, like right. a, really, that's what Field claimed. He said it was less than a thousand. I mean, he might have a little, <laughs> little dramatic. Put the numbers a little bit, <laughs> yeah, back exactly. Then, yeah. But okay. it was not a big one. Uh, ironically, because it sold over five hundred thousand copies in England, it was awarded a silver disc in nineteen sixty-eight, and we have the press release in the exhibit. And in the press release, who is giving the quotes? And <laughs> Proud as Larry Lying Newton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's taking all the credit and so thankful and accepting the award on Louis Armstrong's behalf. So, boom, Armstrong's dead, 1971. And you flash forward 17 years. Uh, the song was used in an Exxon commercial in 1976, but other than that, nothing. Uh, but then it's Good Morning Vietnam. That is the film. Uh, they're making the film. It's got a whole 1960s soundtrack. And uh, there's this really brutal kind of montage of carnage and violence and everything. And whoever is making the film, someone knew this deep cut. Yeah, so that, yeah that's what I wanted to ask about. Like, yeah. so obviously, this this use in the movie breathes new life into the song. It actually right. goes back to the top 40 in the U.S. where it you know, never charted before. But yeah, whose idea did this? This song wouldn't have meant anything to anybody at the time, at least not in this country, right? Exactly. Like, I don't know who selected it for the film, but it was a very striking moment in the film. They released the album on A and M Records, which is Herb Alpert's label. Herb mm-hmm. Alpert was a big Armstrong fan, and in the exhibit we have an article from 1988 all about Satchmo Mania and stuff okay, like well, that. That's, that's and the article yeah. gives the credit to Herb Alpert. They huh. said that A and M needed to select a single, and they had James Brown. They had the Beach Boys. The whole 1960 sure, yeah. soundtrack. And Herb Alper said, what a wonderful world <laughs> it should be, the single. He recognized the injustice yeah, from decades earlier. exactly. Yeah. So they, they released it, I think, in February 88, and then boom, so yeah, I think it got up to number 33 on the pop charts. Yeah, number 33. And um, that's it. It's just never slowed down. And so MCA Records, they put out the original 12-inch LP. They put it out on CD and cassette, and it went gold. So the exhibit also has... The, it's funny, yeah. I, I just want to say gold record, but it's actually gold record slash gold CD slash gold, <laughs> gold cassette, sure, yeah. <laughs> which you don't see many of. But uh, and it's just been you know twenty nine years of. So is it is it possible that if if this movie in this particular you know sync never comes along, then 
you know, this song is not really a part of the Louis Armstrong legacy in the United yeah, States. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, the, the song had its fans, but it would never have been, you know, what it's become. It would have uh, been a collector's item. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The, the big hits were Hello, Dolly, and Mac the Knife, and Blueberry Hill. Everybody mm. knew those. This was really under the radar. And for it to kind of, like, surpass all of them, like, that is the Louis Armstrong song right now. Uh, some purists uh, bristle at this, you know. It's a song without any trumpet. It's, right, it's a, a pop song. It's a pop song. It's a sentimental thing. Uh, I don't, I think it's beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes, the great uh, singer Billy Eckstein, he once talked about it in a BBC interview. He said, did you hear that record he did, What a Wonderful World? He said, uh, you could hear his insides on that mm-hmm. record. Well, so I listened to it uh, for the first time today on headphones. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's mostly a song you just sort of hear as part of the ambience of the universe. Sure. You hear it in you know, CBSs, you'll hear it at weddings, you'll hear it just, just kind of walking down the street in your everyday life. First time I ever really kind of sat down and intently listened to it, I, I never noticed... Like how, how, what a tremble there is in his voice before. Yeah, it's emotional. It's yeah. it's very powerful, and it, it it almost kind of sounds like like an outtake like, because it's that raw and it's that mm-hmm. that that sort of unfiltered. And it, it's pretty tremendous to actually listen to it. Yeah, everything he recorded, you know, he always put a hundred percent. But this one obviously meant you know it meant more to him than say hello, doll. Sure, yeah. <laughs> something a little a little more trite. You know, this was a personal anthem, and the funny part is it's been covered by everyone and their sister. And uh, I don't think anyone has gotten that feeling. I did want to ask if you had a favorite cover version of it, though, because uh, happened Tony, so many. Tony Bennett in 1969 recorded. There's a rumor out there that Tony was offered at first. It's on Wikipedia. I've talked to people who know Tony. Uh, I've talked to the family of the songwriters. I don't think it's true. But Tony did record it in 69, and he turned it into a tribute to Louis Armstrong. Okay. And that was a beautiful version. Uh I don't want to talk about the people who dug up poor dead Louis Armstrong to make their duets. They're your, oh, your yeah. Barry Manilow's and your Kenny G's, and man, just let the dead people. Die. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a sad part of the business. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of Wikipedia, they actually they list a different release date. I saw that. for the single than uh, than you guys have now. You have the museum, so I'm going to I'm going to take your word for it over Wikipedia. Yeah. But do, do you know why there's a discrepancy there? I don't know who wrote the Wikipedia. There's a few things in there that are <laughs> okay. just, just weird. But Billboard reviewed it. I know for a fact on September mm-hmm. 23rd. And uh, yeah, I think the Wikipedia dates like October eighteenth. Yeah. yeah, I mean Armstrong's doing it on the Tonight Show on October eleventh, so it was it was already being pushed. All right, I mean, so if moderate. there's any uh, ambitious Wikipedia editors, yeah, yeah, this out no, there, no, don't, don't listen to Wikipedia. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. You should just hold on oh, to that one. Try videos and free. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask about the the Joey Ramone version of the song. Oh yeah, no, that's because, a good one. Yeah. And and also sort of takes on added resonance because I think it was released posthumously or at least like in the exactly. in his last days, and that, that probably does also add to kind of the 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 aura and the sort of mythos of the Louis Armstrong version because you know he, he wasn't on death's door by any means but he does die three or four years later it's, it's at the end yeah, yeah and this was probably his last signature song right is, is that sort of oh, safe totally. to say? yeah I mean he recorded a few more albums but this was this was it really in terms of mm-hmm. you know anything that resembled the hit uh, but yeah the Ramones version is is great um, because again they did it their own way sure. yeah they didn't have to. Yeah, duet with Dead Lewis Armstrong or a higher <laughs> string section. It's like, yeah, it's still Joey Ramone. Exactly. So that works. Yeah, as long as you keep mm. yourself in there. That's kind of like Lewis Armstrong's, uh, you know, his instructions to the world. Just, you know, be yourself. Do your own way. Yeah, exactly. Is there, is there anything about the song that you feel has kind of gone misunderstood over the years? Not so much misunderstood. Yeah, the big thing, uh, again, in my circle, I come from a jazz background. It's, it's all the people who can't stand it. Right. And, uh, you know, I get it. Like when you're out seeing... 
a uh, you know third-rate jazz band, and the singer breaks into his Armstrong impression <laughs> and does one. Oh yeah, that's, then you kind of like cover your face. It's like, oh, this is not. Really Has there ever been a good jazz version of this song? Any any interesting jazz interpretations of there? If, if, some people must have tried. Yeah, you know, they've tried. You know, I go to New Orleans every year for Satchmo Summerfest, okay. uh, the big Armstrong conference, and I swear to God, I hear it like six thousand times sure. in three days. And some versions are better than others. You know, the, down there at least they they understand him. Um, so there are there are times I kind of wish everyone just left it alone. All right, yeah. <laughs> just said you know this is the gold standard, and why why mess with perfection? Certainly, certainly not to be improved upon. Not to be improved, but again, you know, I, I see these bands. I've heard some versions, mm-hmm. and people get very very emotional. So God bless them. Yeah, it, it does. You know, it's it's a very happy lyric, certainly, but it, there is a kind of like a pervasive sadness to it, too. Totally, and the fact that we're living in this world fifty years later, and it's still full of turmoil, mm-hmm. and still with civil rights struggles, and still with wars. I mean, uh, in that regard, uh, the song is timeless. For you can almost say for the wrong reasons. Sure. Yeah, the song is any song. It's like, listen, everybody, just get along. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful <laughs> world out there. Yeah, I think that message will always resonate because uh, there's always, you know, something out there just screwing the whole damn thing up. But we can we keep on yeah. trying. So, if, if it had had the proper promotion back in 1967, do you think it would have connected with audiences? I mean, popular music was so different back then. No, I think it would have only because. Um, Armstrong was recording for Mercury uh, before he recorded What a Wonderful World. And Mercury, every time they had a good single, they took out these front page ads on Billboard that almost looked like a photo. And yeah, it's a big color photo of Louis Armstrong. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, Louis is back on the charts. And they would say, you know, like advertisement by Mercury. But, <laughs> but they were pushing this stuff. And uh, the fact that um, ABC did zilch on this one. I think really killed it. Uh, when I was going through the Billboard issues on Google, trying to see the whole chart history, it's just interesting. Back then, like whatever the record companies put their weight behind, almost landed on the charts. There was a song called "Cold," and I forgot who did it. I, it just some obscure name, some obscure song. But Columbia Records, I think it was, took out a full-page ad, <laughs> and the tagline was, Catch Cold. And <laughs> I saw that. Very appealing. I said, that is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, like, the next issue was number one on the easy listening charts, like, out of the blue. It just went from zero to number one. So um, another company who, you know, believed in it and put in a few more advertisements and all might have given it the push. Okay. Uh, and you've talked a, a little bit about some of the cool kind of pieces of memorabilia and the artifacts you have uh, at the museum. Is there anything else that you that, that you really consider like a crown jewel of the collection? And anything else that people would yeah, really the, make an effort to come see? Oh well, uh, when they come to the museum, I mean, it's everything there is one hundred percent original yeah, in the Armstrong House and the ashtrays, the lampshades, the refrigerator. It all belonged to Louis Armstrong. So you're walking through the house. People get the sense that he just like stepped out for a few minutes, sure. which is which is pretty great. Uh, and people, you know, we it's really a tourist destination. It's funny getting people from Manhattan to get there is like going to Siberia. Oh, Someone who lives in Astoria, which is actually pretty easy to get to from Manhattan. Right. I know, I know the difficulties. For but sure. we get people every day from Australia, from wow. France, from Japan. So they won't come from Manhattan, but they'll come from exactly. Australia. Exactly, sure. and they come from the airport and they bring their bags and they drop it. And so people who've been Armstrong fans their entire life, mm-hmm. they uh, they take the tour and they come away with a whole new appreciation. So. Yeah, the house itself kind of interprets itself. Uh, we do have one of his trumpets on display, of course. We have seven trumpets overall. The one at the house um, 
was given to him by King George V in 1934, King George of England. Uh, it's the property of Louis Armstrong, gold-plated horn, beautiful horn. Uh, but again, just to get you inside the, the uh, generous mind of Louis Armstrong, he had the horn for about five years. You see it. You can't miss it. It's in movies. It's in photos. And he was backstage one day. And uh, the third trumpeter in the Charlie Barnett Orchestra, Lyman Vunk. Yeah, it's far the from the great a Lyman the Vunk. Great, the great Lyman Vunk is far from a household name as you'll ever find. Uh, he sees Armstrong backstage. He goes, "Man, pops, it's a beautiful horn." And Lewis says, "Yeah." He goes, "Do you want it?" He goes, "I need to get a new one." <laughs> and he gives away King George's trumpet. Wow! And Lyman Vunk became his prized possession. But he died in 1997, and uh, in his will, he left us the horn. So the widow brought the horn in a brown paper bag and wow. dropped it off at the at the museum. So the museum is incredible. Uh, I know I say that with with without bias, uh, but <laughs> really objective. yeah, of course. But the other half, yeah, my side of town, uh, the archives, I mentioned it's the world's largest archives for a single jazz musician, and it's open by appointment only. Uh, our website's lewisarmstronghouse.org. You can make an appointment on the website. But uh, I mentioned the tapes earlier. I can't stress how much fun the tapes are. Okay. Armstrong... Uh, as humble as he was and as down home as he was, he knew that he kind of like changed the sound of music and he overcame racism and poverty to do it. So he wanted to be in control of his own story. So these tapes, uh, I mean, the music is incredible, but you know, to hear him arguing you know, with his wife or to hear him getting high and telling dirty jokes and, and complaining about music and to hear him practicing and all that. Uh, I was personally, I was born nine years after Armstrong died. So when I started writing my book, I was never going to you know, dig him up from the right. grave. I interviewed everybody I could find who knew him and who played with him. But when I started listening to the tapes, I said, this is why he did it. You know, for future generations, hundreds of years from now, <laughs> uh, you know, they can listen to these tapes and be like, okay, now I know what he felt about everything. And is there anything from specifically from this exhibit that, that you're really excited about? Uh, the gold record is fun. Like I said, the, the gold cassette makes me laugh every time. Uh-huh. Um, but we do tie it in, you know, obviously to the, the Corona connection and uh, digging through our collection for this exhibit. I found some photos of Lewis and the neighborhood kids that I had never seen before. They were kind of buried in the far reaches of our collection. Mm-hmm. So there's some beautiful photos of Lewis and the kids. Uh, the arrangement, the original arrangement with the original vocal part uh, that he held in his hands. We have the photo of him at the session where you see the arrangement on the stand. And so we have the original part. Cool. And uh, for the musicians in the crowd, when they always read it, Armstrong ch- sings the melody different from what's written. Yeah, he, oh, yeah. he, he gives his own interpretation right off the bat and everybody has been singing it his way. Would it have been tonally different? Not Totally, but uh, the way it was written was a little more square. <laughs> <laughs> he sash it up a That's little bit. That's what he did. Uh, and so we're recording this on a Wednesday. The actual proper anniversary is this Saturday. Uh, Fifty years. Do, yeah. you have, do you have any you know, special plans for it, either with the museum or just personally? Or no, I mean that's it. You know. Okay. Uh, the exhibit's up for another month. We're open on Saturday. We're open six days a week. We're only closed on Monday. So uh, if you're going to make that trip to Corona, you know, Saturday is a is okay. is a great day. It's kind of like a the high holy day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope to see you there soon enough. Man. Yeah, man. Thank I'll you be, so much for coming. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> 